So how many of y'all know that James is what they've been going through studying on Sunday mornings there in the adult class? Yeah, so that's what they've been doing. This is actually what I did last week in that group. And James is really a fantastic letter, a fantastic letter, because James is writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered, largely because, because of persecution, but these Jewish Christians have been scattered, and James is writing to them, and the focus of what he writes about is the effects of saving faith, the effects of saving faith, and as followers of Jesus, what should our lives look like? How should following Christ in being saved by Jesus impact our lives on a day-to-day basis? How should we live? How should we live differently? And what's great about James, and this happens throughout the Bible, is James talks about this on an individual level. And I think it's pretty natural and easy for us to think like, okay, How should I live on an individual level? Like, what should I personally be doing? What should I personally not be doing? I think that comes pretty natural to us, but the Bible, and James specifically, but all of the New Testament, talks about not just as individual Christians, how should we live, but as a church. How should we live together as a church, as the body of Christ? working with one another, really on the heels of what Alejandro was just saying. So important, like remembering that the Christian life is not just about you, and it's not just about you living as an individual. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, the Bible doesn't say to go to church? Has anybody ever told you that? Like, uh, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't see where in the Bible it says I need to go to church. Has anybody ever told you that? Somebody will at some point, I promise you. And first of all, there are places that talk about you need to go to church. But even bigger than that, like literally, I don't have a number for you exactly, I'm going to make one up. Like literally 70% of the New Testament was written to churches. Like what do you think Paul was doing when he wrote Corinthians? He was writing to the church in Corinth. Ephesians, written to the church in Ephesus. Thessalonians, written to the church in Thessalonica, like he's literally writing to churches. And even as we read James, James isn't written to any individual specific church. He's writing to scattered Christians who are parts of churches. Like if you remove church from the equation, the New Testament largely doesn't even make sense. So it's very important as you think about what should my life look like as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you don't just think about this on an individual level. This isn't about just a list of rules, things you should and shouldn't be doing individually, but this is about as the church also, how should we live together? Those things are very closely interconnected. And in James chapter 4, I'm going to give you a little bit more context here because you haven't been studying through James like the rest of the adults have. So I'll give you a little bit more context here. In James chapter 4, we're going to be specifically looking at verses 7 to 12, but the larger chapter up until that point is about interpersonal relationships within the church. Like how do we interact with one another treat one another, and love one another. Now, could this possibly be an important subject for a youth group? Yes, right? Because in youth group, sometimes we can have challenges with how we treat one another and love one another. So it's an absolutely great um, topic. And the reality, too, is challenges, interpersonal relationships, they can be challenging really in any realm of society, right? Like, I think about just work. Sometimes people argue at work, and people get upset at work. And why do you think people argue and get upset at work? Well, it's because they feel like they're not getting what they deserve, or they feel like they need to be above somebody else to gain something above somebody else. Do y'all ever have, like, conflict at school or like within family, with siblings, among friends? Anybody ever have any conflict? Yeah, it might happen, right? I think if we're being honest, 
everybody would raise their hand. And why do we have conflict? What are just some of the things we fight and argue about? Looking for some answers here. Older brothers, okay, but why? Younger brothers, okay. So, okay, why do brothers, be they older or younger, why can there be conflict sometimes? Hmm. Hmm. Could it sometimes be because the sibling has something that you want? How many times y'all ever fight over, like, the TV? What, what, what you're watching? Or, like, where you're going to go eat? Yes. Yes. Who gets the video game console first? That's why we should just never have video games. Just kidding. Joking, we have video games. Um, okay, so what else? What are some things? Who's right? I would never disagree with Taylor on anything. You're absolutely right. Fighting over who's right. Last one, Nahum. Authority, like who did mom put in charge when she left to the grocery store? And what do all these things have in common? We all want something. That's a great way to put it. Selfishness. Pride. Who's right? Who's wrong? What do I want? Faith that works. Like the PowerPoint now working. There you go. Perfect. Thank you so much, Matt. Good job on the hard work there. In Matt's defense, I gave that to him like a minute ago. Um, so thank you, Matt, for doing that very last minute. So yes, and you know what? James is going to agree with us exactly. James is going to say, yes, this selfishness, selfishness, this pride, this self-centeredness is absolutely the problem. Part of our, the challenge that we have with sin is these attitudes of personal ambition they bring challenges into our interpersonal relationships and it shouldn't surprise us that this happens in every area of society where people interact with each other including the family including the youth group but in the church and the youth group these same sinful ambitions, sinful attitudes that can lead to interpersonal challenges, whether they're at work or within the family or at school or on sports teams, these same attitudes can lead to problems in the youth group and in the church. And for the people that James is writing to, it had led to problems. That's why James is having to address this topic. Um, and if we're honest, and we should be aware that this, too, for North Lake Bible Church, for the youth group here at North Lake Bible Church, can be a challenge also. Look how James specifically talks about it. I'm just going to read over these verses, but I think it's pretty clear what James is saying. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So you see what he's saying? There'd be a whole lot we could unpack there. I'm just trying to give you the context for our verses this morning. And in summary, what James is saying is your selfish desires, your desires for the things that you want above other people, your selfish pride, they lead to interpersonal conflict, be it family, work, teams, or in church. It leads to interpersonal conflict. And it's really your love for the things of this world above the things of God that is causing this conflict. These sinful ambitions, these desires for self-glorification, they are what is leading to this strife. And throughout the New Testament, 
The Bible warns us. James warns us in that passage we just read about friendship with the world. And the whole New Testament warns us about that friendship, that love of the things of this world, that desire for the things of this world. Think about what John says. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. I'll read it to you. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, John is telling us, if you love and desire the things of this world, the worldly ambitions, then it's going to lead to selfish ambition, sin, and strife in your life. But guess who John learned this from? Who do you think John learned that from? Who did he hang out with for a good while? Jesus. Jesus. See, they, we, we studied Matthew 20 not too long ago. James is telling us there's this connection between your selfish ambition and conflict among one another. But remember Matthew 20 that we looked at not too long ago? James and John, a different James here, than James, who wrote the book of James, or letter of James, but um, James, John, and their mom, they come up to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, we want a prominent place in your kingdom, and how did the other disciples feel when they see James and John trying to get this prominent place in the kingdom of Jesus? Angry, Angry, indignant, like they're like, wait a second, how come you get this place of prominence? It's that selfish ambition, just like James promises, instantly leads to strife amongst the group. And Jesus steps in and says, hey, look, these types of selfish ambitions to be great and prominent, that is what the world system loves. That's what the world strives after. It shouldn't be that way among the people of God. But if we're honest, these temptations get the best of us sometimes, and these worldly ambitions lead to conflict within the church. But James gives them the answer and gives us the answer back in James chapter 4. He points out how these selfish ambitions are causing problems in the church, and then he gives them the answer. The second half of verse 4 says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But here's the answer. But God gives the greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is the answer right there. When it comes to interpersonal relationships and how we're to treat one another in the church, how we're to love one another, that attitude, that reminder that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble is really the key. Because it's the pride, it's the selfish ambition that causes strife. But when we humbly love one another and love God, that is where the peace and the unity comes back into the church. And in verses 7 to 12, the verses we're going to focus on, James shifts his attention a little bit with how we speak to one another. How do we speak to one another and about one another within the church? And in verses 7 to 12, still sticking with this overarching theme at the beginning of chapter 4 of peace and unity in the church, the theme here is that peace exists in the church when its members have attitudes of humble repentance and trust in the Lord. So what's remarkable about what James is going to tell us when it comes to our relationships with one another, this issue of selfish pride and ambition, and then how we speak of one another, the key really starts with our relationship to God. We can't, if we're not submitting to God, if we're not living in obedience to God, then we can't expect our relationships with one another in the church to be healthy. If we are submitting to God, and we are living in obedience to God, 
the natural outflow of that, one of the natural outflows of that, is that we are going to treat one another right, love one another, and have relationships of peace within the church. So as we look at verses 7 to 12, the first place James is going to start is with our attitudes towards God, our behavioral disposition towards God. God. He starts in verses 7 to 10. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He's going to give us three behavioral dispositions here. <clears throat> and they all have to do with our obedience to God because that's going to be the foundation from which our relationships with one another are in a healthy place. And he starts, submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. That is our first behavioral disposition. Submit to God. Those words, submit therefore to God, simple in a sense, in the fact that it's just a few words, you can quickly write them down, you can quickly read them, but those are profound words. They are literally the answer to everything. There's nothing you can think of where the answer isn't submit therefore to God. Stop loving the world. Stop pursuing the world. Stop being consumed with worldly ambition. Those things, the world system, because what's the world based on? The world is based on selfishness, pride. What can I do for myself? How can I build myself up? Stop. Stop doing that. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. The second, resist the devil. Resist the devil. He says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is Satan. The devil is your accuser, your adversary. Now, is Satan powerful? Yeah. Satan is real and Satan is very, very powerful. His usage of demons, spiritual forces, they've arrayed themselves against the church and against God's plans and purposes, and they are powerful. Tremendous influence in this world. Look around at this world, and you can see the significance of Satan's influence and just how powerful he is. But is his power anything compared to God's power? No, absolutely not. God's power is infinite. And I'm no mathematician, but I don't care how big your number is, you compare it to infinity, and I don't know what the technical mathematical rule of this is, but it's nothing, right? Like, infinity consumes anything else, no matter how big it is. Satan, as powerful and strong as he truly is, is nothing compared to our gods. And Satan's power only goes as far as God's wisdom sovereignty allows it. And there's some mystery there, right? Like, why does God let Satan do anything? Look, God's plans and wisdom is so far beyond anything we can comprehend, but we know his goodness. We know his love. We know his holiness, and we can trust it. And the reality is, while we don't understand why God allows Satan the time he has on this earth to do what he's doing and the significant influence and power that he does have, we know that Satan cannot go even an inch further than God allows him. And that 
in the, I mean, we've been looking at the end of Matthew, right? Like, we've been looking at what's coming in the future. We know that the very instant God wants and desires Satan's power to completely cease forever, for eternity, it will. In an instant, with a simple word from God, Satan, as powerful as he is, is nothing compared to God. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are not a slave to Satan. And you are not a slave to sin. As powerful as temptation is in this life, and as powerful of an influence as sin is in our life, you're not a slave to it. The Spirit of God, if you are a follower of Christ, the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you, dwells inside of you, is at work inside of your life, so that you can choose to live in obedience to God. Before you come to Christ, you don't have that choice. Before you come to Christ, you are dead in your sins, and you are a slave to your sin. There's nothing you can do to overcome it in and of yourself. You need forgiveness through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. And at that point, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you so that you are no longer a captive to sin and Satan. But you can choose to live in obedience to God. You can choose to resist the devil. And James promises you the devil will flee from you. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Now, practically, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can't resist the devil because you're a slave to your sin. And that's just how it's going to be until you come to a place where you recognize you are broken spiritually and you need God to give you life. You need God to give you spiritual life. And when you come to that place, God promises he will give you that life when you turn to him and you seek it in Jesus Christ, knowing that Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life that through faith is credited to you, and then died on this cross for your sins, which are credited to him, so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Once you've come to that place, then you can resist the devil and practically how do you do it? I'm going to ask you for answers here, so think of your answers. How do you resist the devil? I'm going to tell you one wrong answer is rebuking him. If you haven't yet, you will probably at some point come across somebody who thinks they can rebuke or even should rebuke Satan. And let me just promise you, if, as long as you're studying the Bible, you will never, ever, ever come across cross a command to rebuke Satan. In fact, there's only one verse. Now, I didn't go search this, so if you know of another verse, don't come like try to show off and be like, I found another verse. But the only time I can even think of the word Satan being rebuked or Satan being rebuked in the Bible is Zechariah 3.2, and the person rebuking Satan is God, okay? So if somebody ever says like, well, yeah, you need to rebuke Satan. Look, there's nowhere in the Bible that you're ever commanded to rebuke Satan. And again, the only person that ever does that is God. So what are the practical ways for you to resist the devil? What are the, some of those ways? Memorizing scripture. Memorizing scripture. I love it. And is it just because like, you know, you memorize like the periodic table or you memorize math formulas or you memorize other things, like is it just because you're memorizing something? Why, why is that important? You're 100% correct, but why is it important? What is the word of God in your battle against Satan? What does Ephesians tell you? It's your weapon. It's your sword. And in fact, think about Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes and tempts Jesus. How does Jesus respond to Satan in every temptation? With scripture. Go read Matthew 4. Every temptation. Jesus responds with scripture. Jesus had to know scripture in order to do that. So memorizing scripture and your knowledge of scripture, absolutely. Weapon number one when it comes to resisting the devil. William. Put on the full armor of God. Put on. What does that mean? You're right. But how... What are some of the things you would do to do that? I think there's a few ways. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. Yeah, Ephesians 6 walks us through a lot of things, right? When it comes to the full armor of God, how about prayer, right? Like prayer, along with the word of God, is a key weapon when it comes to resisting Satan, resisting the devil. What are some other things? I saw somebody else's hand. Go ahead, Fox. Yes. Look, temptation is real. Temptation, you're going to feel it every day. Avoid tempting circumstances with as much as you can. Like, trust me, you don't have to seek out temptation. It'll find you, but you can avoid it many, many times. Not always, but many times you can. You know there's places you shouldn't go. You know there's things on the computer you shouldn't go do. You know there's things on TV you shouldn't go try to find. You know there's people you probably shouldn't interact with and conversations you shouldn't have. You know, if you're honest, you know where you struggle with sin. And if you continue to be honest, you can often, almost always, and if you just think about it, talk to people if you haven't identified it, you can identify those areas that tempt you towards that sin. And go back to Jesus. How radical did Jesus say we should be in our fight against temptation. Very radical. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to be physically crippled than to spend eternity in hell because of your sin. And Jesus didn't mean that stuff literally. You know how we don't, we, you know how we know Jesus didn't literally mean go mutilate your body? Because there's not one isolated example from the disciples or the apostles in Scripture of them doing that, okay? We know Jesus was making a point. He was speaking hyperbolically like, take your sin incredibly serious. Take your sin, it's a life or death circumstance. Do whatever it takes to avoid temptation and walk in obedience to God. I I think being quick to repent is another way to resist the devil. You are going to fall into temptation and sin. It happens to every Christian living on this earth, but when you do, be quick to repent and turn to obedience. This kind of goes along with what William and Ian were talking about. Cultivate those spiritual disciplines, prayer, scripture reading, um, scripture memory, scripture meditation, Fellowshipping with the church and serving in the church is a great weapon against Satan. Because we're strong. That's how God created us as Christians to nurture one another and care for one another and build one another up. Ian, I'm sorry? To love God? Put your hope in God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as the body of Christ, we nurture each other to do that. But there's even, uh, it's a nice promise. It's a great promise James gives us here. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's awesome. But there's a better promise in verse 8. Even better, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You really can't get your mind around that. Like the bigness of it and the fullness of it, right? Because who is God? Tell me who God is. Who is God? Holy? Perfect? Absolutely. God, when we talk about, you're right, she said God's holy. And she is absolutely right. Holy means like this sinful system we're a part of. God is absolutely set apart from that. Set apart in perfection. Almighty. Ian says almighty. God is all-powerful. All There's, like we mentioned a moment ago, his power is infinite. Sophie, right? Sovereign. So think about what you all just said. Like, he is holy. He is perfect and all-powerful and sovereign in control of everything. You don't want to remove any of those attributes, right? Like, do you want somebody who is all-powerful but don't really know what they're doing, or maybe they're not loving, that would be a problem. That would be pretty scary, right? Or what if God was perfectly loving, and he knew everything, but he just wasn't that, like, he, he had a limit to his power, 
Like he's pretty powerful, maybe he can get it done, but I don't know. No, that wouldn't be good either, right? But the thing about God is all these attributes work together. He is perfect in his love, perfect in his holiness, perfect in his power. He's the creator of all things. He literally spoke all these things into being. Effortlessly created everything in existence out of nothing. Think about just how great God is. And this is the God that promises to draw near to you. Isn't that remarkable? You really can't fully get your mind around the fact that this infinite, perfect God, who, I mean, we just, every day we learn more and more about space and like how it goes on and on and on and just the complexity of it. This God who holds all that together and just even this world, we increasingly learn how complex it is. And no matter how much we learn, we'll never exhaust it, right? We're just going to be more and more amazed the more we learn. The God who made all this and holds all this together personally desires fellowship with you. There's nothing more remarkable than that. Like, that reality should blow you away. And through Jesus Christ, you would think, too, this is the gospel, right? Like, you would think this incredibly magnificent God, we rebelled against him. We would really need to work hard and try to do something to earn his favor back, right? Like, we kind of think that way in our human relationships. If there's somebody we really like and admire and we hurt their feelings— and we want to be restored to them. Like, we go try to be nice to them, right? Like, hey, I'm sorry. Let me buy you dinner. Let me give you a gift. Let me try to earn your favor back. But with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the opposite. This God, who is infinitely magnificent, desires a relationship with you. And while you offended him, and you should try to have to earn his favor back, instead, the gospel is that he makes the path back together possible through Jesus Christ. You see how magnificent of a thing the gospel is. God will draw near to you. He will dwell inside of you. His nearness couldn't be more near. He's not beside you. He's not in your proximity. The very creator of this universe through Jesus Christ will dwell inside of you. It, it really, the fullness of it that's what we're going to spend as followers of Jesus an eternity learning more and more about. Like, think about any other topic. You study it long enough, you're going to maybe get to know just about everything there is about it, right? Like your favorite movie, you can memorize every word and every scene, and there's really not much more to learn about it. Your favorite book, you can memorize every word. When it comes to God, though, you will spend eternity growing in your love for him and in your knowledge of him in a way that never ends because our God is inexhaustible. And when you think about this God and your relationship with him, this is, so step back again because we started with talking about worldly pride, right? Like worldly ambition, fighting over the Nintendo Switch fighting over what we're going to watch on TV or where, what, what fast food restaurant we're going to after church. Now, James reorients our thoughts to this great God. How do those things, those worldly ambitions we have and we fight over, look in light of the greatness of our God? You seen two birds like fighting over a french fry in McDonald's parking lot? It's kind of what fighting over the switch is, right? Or like where we're going to go eat after church. Or like think about anything, even if it's bigger things. Like, hey, we both like the same guy or we both like the same girl. Or hey, like you said something really hurtful about me. Like even think about bigger serious things. Like because there are legitimate challenges when it comes to relationships. What James is saying is take even those big challenges that you genuinely have when it comes to relationships and put them in the light of who God is, 
who you are in God, who he is to you in your relationship with him. And it's like that song says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory in grace. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That's why James, in this chapter, chapter 4, he's talking about peace in the church, peace among one another. This is, such a, this is the centerpiece to ch- peace in the church and health in the church. Because where our focus is on the goodness of God and his glory and loving him and our relationship with him, strife amongst one another, it has a much harder time of finding a foothold. Does the logic of what James is doing make sense here? It's just much harder for that strife to find a foothold. But it it happens, so a third piece here, repentance. Repent of sin. James is talking to people who have fallen into these traps of worldly ambition, just like we often do. And so he's calling us here to repentance. I got to go way faster. I'm sorry. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He, he, he's calling us here, recognize our sin for what it is. Our sin puts us in opposition to God. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, yet you're loving this world, the things of this world, you are double-minded. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And what's all this talk here about um, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's saying here is that we can very often misplace our hope and our joy and our laughter and the things that make us happy. Those should be placed with God and on God as the focus. We can easily, though, as humans, try to find that and put that on the things of this world. Maybe you're great at school. Maybe you're great at athletics. Maybe you're just a really fun, popular person. Everybody likes you. It's easy to attach your joy to worldly accomplishments. But that is all false. And that is all, um, all, all fleeting. I mean, anything that you're attaching to in this world will one day be done away with. If it's your athletic ability... One day, I can promise you, your athletic ability will not be there. For some, they never have it. For some, it's gone by like the age of 20. For some, you're Tom Brady and you go to 40. But at some point, it goes away, right? Or if you're attaching your hope and your joy to just other people's opinion of you and your popularity, guess what? People will turn on you in this world like that. Anything in this world. Jesus said, don't build your mansion on a foundation of sand because judgment is coming and it'll come crashing down. See, the problem for the audience of James, and it can be the problem for us, is they had done this. They had built their joy, their laughter, their hope in the things of this world. And James says, no, it's all false. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom because true life true joy, true laughter for eternity are only to be found in Christ alone. He says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So how does this tie in to our speech towards one another? Well, it's because we can't properly love one another, treat one another well, until our relationship with God is in the right place. That's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. But that's where James is now taking us. How do we treat one another? And specifically here, he's going to be talking about our speech. Our speech towards one another and our speech about one another. And again, he's talking in chapter 4 about quarrels and conflict within the church, but Pretty often, that is going to come 
with gossip, with negative speech towards one another. So he starts in verses 11 and 12. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull them up here. He gives us two. Do not slander one another and do not be judgmental. He starts in verse 11. Do not, let me just read 11 to 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He starts here, do not speak against one another, brethren. And he also incorporates judging here. Now, I don't have time to go back and read it, but if you go look at chapter 3, read that later, he's already warned his, the people he's writing to about the dangers of the tongue. Like, we shouldn't speak badly about one another and worship God out of the same mouth. We shouldn't curse one another and worship God out of the same um, mouth. And this word speak against in chapter 4, MacArthur defines it as mindless, thoughtless, careless, derogatory, untrue speech directed against others. And he also brings up judgment here. And what he's condemning here is not are there going to be times in relationships where we sin against one another or somebody's having a problem with sin and we need to address that? Is that going to happen even in healthy relationships? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What he's talking about, what James is saying we should not do, though, is have a condemning, judgmental attitude towards one another. And, you know, it's ironic, perhaps, but if you think about Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about church discipline, I think it gives us the perfect picture of how to properly address sin among one another and how not to address sin among one another. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about how do we address sin within the church. And he says, if in Matthew 18, if, if you know a brother is living in unrepentant, hard-hearted sin, then as a brother or sister in Christ, you should approach them in love and call them to repentance. And if they repent, that's great. You don't need to talk about it with anybody else. Nobody else needs to know. The brother has repented, and that was the goal. But if they do not listen to you, then the job of the faithful Christian is to share that concern with one or two others. And as a group, go talk to that um, erring brother. And if that doesn't work, then it's the job of the church to call them to repentance. But what, throughout the whole process, is the motive when dealing with sin among one another's? The motive is love. The motive is restoration. It's that recognition that sin is a destructive force in a person's life. And in love, you're calling them back to repentance. And there's also this principle of minimal necessary pressure. The hope is that you go to them one-on-one -on -one in confidence and say, Hey, look, I see this sin issue here, and I love you, and I'm calling you back to repentance. And if that person repents, there's no need to go further. The job is done. The motivation is love and the goal is restoration. What James is talking about here, what he is teaching against, is this attitude of using judgment as a weapon. A condemning attitude where you look for faults in somebody else because you want to go use that as a weapon. Instead of a foundation of love and a motivation for restoration, it's hatred and a desire to tear people down. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the difference? And James tells us that such speech, if we slanderously speak about one another, if we take condemning judgmental attitude towards one another, then we have put ourselves in opposition to God in his law. Jesus said the, the second, first most important commandment, love God. Second, love one another. If you speak badly about one another, 
and condemn and judge one another, you are acting with hate towards one another, which is in direct opposition to God. Slander has a foundation of hate and is contrary to God's law. He says in verse 11, He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now that's interesting wording, but what James is saying is that when you speak wrongfully of one another in opposition to God's law, in essence, you are claiming to know better than God. You are claiming to be superior to God. And that's really what sin is, right? Whether it's slander or any other sin, sin is essentially saying, hey God, I know what you said, but I think I'm going to do my own thing anyhow. It's direct rebellion against God. And in addition, if we take condemning judgmental attitude towards one another, who alone has the right to condemn and judge but God? It is once again you looking to usurp God's rightful position of authority. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And again, we have to be careful here, right? Because as people, people tend to not take sin serious. And if you try to talk with somebody about their sin, very often they're quickly to say, who are you to judge me? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard somebody say, who are you to judge me? Or have you ever heard say, like, only God can judge me? Oftentimes they say that, like, thinking God has a lower standard or something. It's like, uh, I don't think you know what you're asking for necessarily. Um, so we have to be careful here. Because if we're honest, when somebody has that type of approach where they're saying, hey, who are you to judge me? You don't have the right to judge me. What is in reality happening, if they're honest, is they just love their sin and they want to hold on to their sin. And they are upset that you chose to talk about their sin and point out their sin that they want to hold on to. And that's not what James is advocating here. James absolutely, you can tell from just what we've read this morning, James wants us to take sin serious in our own hearts and in our own lives and in the church. And when sin arises, we should address it the way God calls us to, but it is never again from the position of using that judgment as a weapon of trying to act in condemnation towards one another. Instead, it's when we see sin in our midst, the attitude is in love, calling that person to repentance. The foundation and motivation of our speech towards one another is love. And the one thing that should never have a place in the church among believers is slandering one another speaking poorly of one another, talking about one another behind each other's back in a way that's not, that, that, that's condemning. That never has any place. You, that, so judgment can be, like, dealing with sin can be done in a healthy way and in an unhealthy way, right? Unhealthy way. We see that. But slander, malicious gossip, there is not a proper way to do that. There is not a proper way to talk badly about somebody. That is a sin that we have to be sensitive to in ourselves and among ourselves so that we are quick to repent when that happens. So real quickly, three points that I just kind of wanted to point out here from all, really James chapter 4 up to verse 12. First, love the church above yourself. Okay? Think about all James is talking about here. Selfish ambition leads to trouble in the church, in the youth group. A desire for you to be great, for everybody to look up to you and think you're awesome. That's only going to lead to problems when it comes to our relationships with one another. It's only going to lead to slander, to condemning attitudes, being judgmental. Love one another. Love the church above 
yourself. You know, part of humbling yourself to God before God is trusting. Like, you don't need to get out there and fight all the battles for yourself. You humbly submit to God knowing that he is all-powerful, he is in control, and he is going to take care of you. You don't need to fight your own battles. God will fight them for you. Love the church above yourself. Like Alejandro was talking about. Serve the church. Look for ways to serve one another, to minister to one another. When you come to church, it's not about what you can get out of it. It's how can I invest in the body of Christ. Second, based on what James has told us, take sin seriously in your own life. Look at the words that James uses in verses 7 to 10 about how serious we should take sin when we find it in our own lives. Mourn over it. Repent. Turn away. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. God will draw near to you. And third, let your speech be edifying. If you go read James 3 and 4, he says a lot about the power of our words. And we've all experienced that, right? Like we've all been the recipient of words. Has anybody ever said anything to you that really encouraged you? Really strengthened you? really motivated you? Yeah, we've all experienced that. Has anybody ever said something to you that really tore you down and derailed your day and made you feel horrible? Absolutely, we've all experienced that. We've all experienced both sides. We've all experienced the power of words. Words, it's a double-edged sword. It's something that cuts both ways. And as a follower of Christ, you have a choice. How are your words going to be used in the body of Christ? As Jesus watches you, how you speak, and he does, and he watches how you speak to one another and about one another, does Christ look at you and see somebody who is building others up and using the words that you have for the good that God intends you to use them for? Or does Jesus see you as somebody who's tearing people down and causing division in the church? Read the New Testament. See how God feels about divisive people in the church. I'm just telling you, it's really bad. In fact, there's an abbreviated church discipline path when it comes to divisiveness in the church. God takes it ultra serious. We should take it just as serious as God does and recognize the power that we have to love one another and build one another up when we love each other more than our own selves. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for the gift that the church is and just pray that we would honor you and glorify you with hearts of gratitude for the gift of the church, the fact that we get to be a part of it, and the fact that by God's grace we've been integrated in. And I just pray that we would love each other honor you, and as a church, strive to serve you every single day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.